This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So as you know, my name is Drew, and uh, the, I wanted to give, kick off with a little bit of background on the perfections in Pali, the language of the original uh, Buddhist texts. Um, the term is parami, in Sanskrit paramita. If you're from the Mahayana tradition, you may have heard of the paramitas. And there are ten in the Theravada tradition, our lineage, and um, the very first one and the foundational one is generosity. So uh, about the paramis, there's a story in the Buddha Vamsa, uh, part of the Kudakanikaya, or minor collection in the Pali Canon, of a lay follower named Sumedha, who lived eons and eons ago. He was practicing, much as we are, to, uh, on, on the path to arahantship, to become a fully liberated being in this lifetime. He heard there was a Buddha named Dipankara living, teaching in a town nearby. So he went to hear him and was so filled with deep reverence that he made a vow then and there to become a Buddha in a future life. This marked his entry into the path of the Bodhisattva, a being bound for Buddhahood. And this is the heart of the distinction between the Mahayana and the Theravada. Theravada, we're usually considering ourselves working for libera- toward liberation, and the Mahayana are working toward Buddhahood. So back to Sumedha. Having made this vow, he wondered what aspects of mind and heart he would need to develop in order to become a Buddha. Upon reflection, he saw that he would need to perfect ten wholesome qualities. Generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. There will not be a quiz. He called these qualities paramis, which is usually translated perfections. And with that, he began his eons-long journey that led him to attain full enlightenment as Gautama Buddha under the Bodhi tree in northern India more than 2,500 years ago in this eon. So here we are. Although the paramis feature much more prominently in Mahayana literature and practice, I understand from the essay by Guy Armstrong where I got the story, that there are in fact many Theravadin practitioners in Burma that are pursuing the Bodhisattva path. So it is part of this lineage, just not really mainstream. 
But that said, these are certainly wholesome qualities that any practitioner, whether striving for liberation or Buddhahood, uh, can cultivate to good effect in our lives here and now. And as Armstrong points out, one of the beautiful features of the paramis is that these qualities can be developed in daily life as well as in retreat. Qualities like generosity, virtue, patience, and truthfulness can be developed strongly in daily life, while aspects like energy, wisdom, and equanimity may develop more fully through formal meditation practice. So, as some of you who know me may know, I like to do a little bit of audience participation. So, I'd like us to work in pairs now, and we're going to do an exercise exploring since these are perfections, qualities that we can perfect, we're going to look at where we're imperfect in the practice of generosity. So this will only take uh, about 10 minutes. Um, by way of setting the, the framework, um, many of us are sometimes conflicted about generosity, about giving, This culture doesn't really emphasize it in the way that the culture of northern India or many of the Buddhist countries where where Buddhism is a living culture, giving is is foundational, is practiced constantly. Little children are held up to give the offering into the alms bowl. But for us in the West, it's a little different. So I want you to turn to someone near you, next to you, Not necessarily, you don't have to meet with a stranger. So pick your person now, please. And if if you need to get up and move around and make sure you have a partner, please feel free. Siddharth, you can stick with your mom, it's okay. Everybody have a partner? There can be a, a group of three if you need to have a group of three. It's cool. All right. So the idea here is I'd like you to consider these questions. Do you experience distress or unease in giving in a situation where the expectation is that you give or you feel that you should or you know you're confronted with a homeless person or a musician or something and whatever. What does it feel like and what holds you back? So this is in a situation where you don't feel comfortable giving. What feelings or thoughts arise? Can you remember a time when that happened? Okay, so the the ground rules are um, one person, you'll just sit giving complete attention to one person and decide who's going to speak first. And the other person will sit and give the speaker their undivided attention for three minutes. Okay? And then the listener will reflect back to the speaker for two minutes in her or his own words what that they understood the person to say. And then I'll ring a bell. Well, I'll ring a bell after three minutes and you'll switch and then I'll ring another bell after two minutes, and the first listener will share for three minutes something where they felt uncomfortable, where they felt stuck around giving. And then I'll ring another bell, and you can share for two more minutes. 
Okay? Any questions about the diet exercise? Anything you want, as broad as you want. Any time where you feel you were stuck in a situation where you wanted to give but didn't, or where you felt it was expected or you were invited to give and you held back. It can be time, it can be assistance, it can be money, it can be food. Any, any place where the, the flow from the heart got stuck. Ready? Go. Any insights? Hey, it's insight meditation. You're supposed to have insight. It was uh, interesting. My mind immediately went to like the generosity of giving, um, like money or food, um, versus time, because I, you know, offer a lot of my time in ways. But, um, but yeah, I was thinking about, <clears throat> yeah, that, um, yeah, volunteering or helping. Or other ways to give. Um, mm, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I realize that there's, that I have discomfort, maybe um, confusion that almost, oh, it amounts to, uh, well, discomfort is pain. So there's a little bit of suffering involved in this. Um, stress about generosity or giving. And it strikes me that if we, perf- if I, when, when I perfect generosity, I'll no longer suffer, at least in that realm of my existence. So that's worth striving for. Okay. Yes. So um, I suppose I should sit. I'm, I'm used to. I was an ESL teacher. I was used to standing and pacing when I was teaching. Um, we've just encountered in ourselves some of the ways the uh, inability or discomfort with the flow from the heart of generosity can bring up suffering. So looking at the, the practice of generosity and how it brings happiness is basically what we're going to be, I am going to be talking about tonight. So in Pali, there are two terms that are usually translated generosity. Dana is the more common one, which actually means donation or gift or sharing. Dana and donation come from the same Greek 
grandparent. Um, the word that the Buddha used for the virtue of generosity that is cultivated in the heart is actually chaga. But nobody talks about chaga. So here in northern coastal California, pretty much the term that is used is dana. So I'm just going to stick with dana for this evening. Um, in ordinary contemporary English language, um, the discussion of dana uh, I drew uh, from Bhikkhu Bodhi's anthology of the suttas and his commentary, and his commentary is well worth the cost of the book, um, in the Buddha's words. The, uh, there are a few places where he's explaining the importance of generosity. And um, in one place he says, the principal virtues a lay follower should possess leading to future welfare are one, faith in the Buddha as the enlightened one, two, moral discipline, basically unbroken observance of the five precepts, three, generosity, which is what we're talking about this evening, charity, giving, sharing, and for wisdom, that is insight into the arising and passing away of phenomena. So this is foundational, it's, it's really core. And he goes on in another place, the Nikayas, the collections of the, the discourses, concisely organize the types of merit into three bases of meritorious deeds, giving, moral discipline, and meditation. So it's right in there with, with the core of, of the practice. Again, he says, the Buddha often treated giving, here the term is dana, as the most rudimentary virtue of the spiritual life. Forgiving serves to break down the egocentric frame of mind on the basis of which we habitually interact with others. Found that really interesting. And here, rudimentary doesn't mean lesser, but foundational. So going on to quote directly from the text, of course, in English translation, um, from the Anguttara Nikaya, and how is a family man accomplished in generosity? This is uh, from a discourse the Buddha was giving to a lay follower, a family man, saying, how do I do these perfections? And um, the Buddha listed them, and then he expanded on each of them. So here is his, his answer about generosity. Here, a family man dwells at home with a mind devoid of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, delighted in giving and sharing. In this way, a family man is accomplished in generosity. And in the Itivuttaka, one of the shorter texts, O monks, if people knew as I know, this is the Buddha speaking, if people knew as I know the result of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would they allow the stain of stinginess to obsess them and take root in their minds. Even if it were their last morsel, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it if there were someone to share it with. 
but monks, as people do not know, as I know, the result of giving and sharing. They eat without having given, and the stain of stinginess obsesses them and takes root in their mind. And importantly, another one, a paraphrase from the Anguttara Nikaya, I'll use the inclusive feminine pronoun. A noble giver is one who is happy before, during, and after giving. Before giving, she is happy anticipating the opportunity to exercise her generosity. While giving, she is happy that she is making another happy by fulfilling a need. After giving, she is satisfied that she has done a good deed. I'll come back to this. Uh, And the last quote I wanted to touch on, although not specifically about Donna, I think it's relevant and I'll bring it up later. Whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. So using these comments and passages, we can begin to triangulate on the the core idea of dana practice. We'll look at taking it from different directions. It's an essential virtue for us as lay followers. It's on an equal footing with moral discipline and meditation, sila and samadhi, groups of the Noble Eightfold Path, and it is a source of great happiness. The reduction of stress around should I give or shouldn't I give. Further, the more we incline our mind to giving, not only will it become easier to give, but the more spontaneously will we experience the joy of giving. It will become part of who we are. So, continuing with some words from Gil Fronstall's little book, The Issue at Hand, where he pointed out the distinction between chaga and dana, he says, this use of chaga is particularly significant because it also means relinquishment or renunciation. Two very key virtues in the idea of our practice. An act of generosity entails giving more than is required, customary or expected. But the Buddha stressed that the spiritual spiritual efficacy of the gift is dependent not on the amount given, but rather on the attitude with which it is given. A small donation that stretches a person of little means is considered of greater spiritual consequence than a large but personally insignificant donation from a wealthy person. We don't need to expand on that in the context of the current political situation. Dana was understood by the Buddha and by practitioners ever since as a source of merit especially for future lives. This is in line with Bhikkhu Bodhi's comment about generosity being one of the three types of meritorious deeds. However, we can also relate to the merit of dana in the idea of instant karma, the idea that actions can have immediate effects on the mind and heart, even in the moment of performing them. That goes back to the quote about <clears throat> the noble giver being happy before, during, and after the giving. Uh, So, as Gil says, 
Dana is not meant to be obligatory or done reluctantly. The Buddha emphasized the joy in giving. Gil goes on to say, as a practice, generosity has two important functions. First, it helps connect us with others and with ourselves. Practicing generosity together with meditation practice helps ensure that our spiritual practice doesn't occur aloof from others. Second, through our practice of generosity, we begin to understand where we're closed, where we're holding back, where we feel our fear. We learn what keeps us from being generous, and we take on the practice to see where we resist it. So that was part of the exercise at the beginning to get us in touch with this quality of resistance. This reminds us of Bhikkhu Bodhi's words, giving serves to break down the egocentric frame of mind on the basis of which we habitually interact with others. So part of the practice of Buddhism as we are pursuing it in the here and now is looking at how we interact with others and how our energy flows from our hearts. Um, I hope I'm not stealing Kim's thunder too much. Sharon Salzberg has a wonderful book, Loving Kindness, in which is a a really beautiful chapter on the power of generosity uh, that echoes these sentiments. Um, She says, generosity's aim is twofold. We give to free others and we give to free ourselves. Without both aspects, the experience is incomplete. If we give a gift freely, without attachment to a certain result or expectation of what will come back to us, that exchange celebrates freedom both within ourselves as the giver and in the receiver. In that moment of pure giving, we really become one. In this way, we remember that our most basic drive for every single one of us is a longing to be happy. Engaging in an act of generosity acknowledges our oneness in this wish. So again, breaking down the the egocentric barriers between us. She continues a little further on, if we practice giving over and over, it grows very strong. Externally, it frees others. Um, Internally, we free ourselves. The movement of the heart in generosity mirrors the movement of the heart in letting go on the inner journey. Letting go, abandoning, relinquishing, is actually the same mind state as generosity. So the practice of giving deeply influences the feeling tone of our meditation practice and vice versa. So many people in Asian countries who come to the U.S. are quite confounded by the fact that we put meditation first. In Asian Buddhist countries, giving comes first. Generosity comes first and is foundational. And meditation comes much later on. Um, And it's also important, going back to Amanda's comment, to keep in mind that generosity is not exclusively about money. We can be generous with our time, our care, our attention, a friendly smile, 
taking the time to really listen to a friend, even just allowing someone to simply be just the way they are, these are all examples of ways in which we can practice generosity in our daily lives. On a related note, um, I went to hear Gil on Monday night on Halloween, and among other things, he talked about the Buddhist concept of hungry ghosts. Germane to Halloween. Um, again, according to Sharon Salzberg, in the Buddhist cosmology, one of the realms of beings is that of hungry ghosts. These are beings with immense bellies but pinhole mouths so that they are continually driven by unsatisfied desire. When someone asked the Vietnamese Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh what life is like in the realm of hungry ghosts, he answered with one word, America. (laughs) So back to Gil's story about the hungry ghosts. Um, Some Zen communities in the U.S. have moved the traditional Japanese Midsummer Festival honoring the dead to Halloween. And especially here in coastal California with Dio de los Muertos, we have the, the sort of the dead and the ghosts and Halloween and skulls and skeletons sort of all folded together. Um, at this time, the dead, according to the Japanese tradition, uh, come back as hung- the hungry ghosts of the dead come back to visit the living and they're invited to come back by the living and honored as guests. And there is a lot of food uh, given to the temples at that time in order to serve or honor the hungry ghosts. However, because they're ghosts, they can't eat the food. They belong to a different realm, so they can't partake of physical food. What they feed on is the generosity of the members of the congregation who offer the food, which helps to assuage their insatiable hunger. So by practicing the uh, giving and generosity and charity, we can reduce the insatiable hunger of our own hungry ghosts. We can practice letting go in ourselves and our hungry ghosts become weaker. So next, I'd like to talk a little bit about what some of the recent research on giving and happiness tells us. Um, And I'm going to talk about more recent stuff, so if you're at all interested, you can email me at drew at imsb.org, and I can give you the links. Um, This part of the talk I gave in a different form a few years ago at IMSB in Mountain View, And right before that talk, on July 8th of 2012, this appeared in the New York Times. Don't indulge, be happy. So it goes on about some of the recent research, which I first encountered, actually, in my my incarnation as an ESL teacher, reviewing TED Talks for, for my students, Um, There was a TED Talk by Michael Norton entitled How to Buy Happiness. He starts off by talking about the fact that lottery winners are not usually happier after winning them before. 
briefly. You know, there's a period of euphoria, but they're often worse off in the long run. They usually, one, spend all their money and go into debt, and two, all their friends are always bugging them about money. So both their financial welfare and their social interactions are far worse than they were before. Norton goes on to talk about an experiment he and his colleagues did in which they gave people an envelope with either $5 or $20 and a slip of paper telling them either to spend the money on themselves or on someone else. Follow-up indicated that the pro-social spenders, the ones who spent it on somebody else, were consistently happier, much happier, than those who spent the money on themselves. Their further research revealed in context after context, country after country, that this finding held up. Even babies, infants, were happier sharing their goldfish crackers than when they hoarded them for themselves. So this seems to be very deeply rooted human behavior, that sharing things brings us pleasure. So here we have contemporary corroboration of the Buddhist teaching all that many centuries ago. Giving will make us happy. But how do we put this into practice? Well, that's the key word. Practice. Meditation is a practice. Moral discipline is a practice. Medicine is a practice. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. So we need to practice giving. So another talk I found on TED was one by uh, Sasha Dichter, the chief innovation officer for the Acumen Fund. And the talk is entitled The Generosity Experiment. He says he had an epiphany on the MTA in Boston going home one evening. Someone asked him for money on the train and he reflexively said no. this ever happened to you? Somebody asks you for money, you say no. Okay. He realized, upon reflection, that that had been a mistake. And the next day, on his blog, chief innovation officers have blogs, I guess, that he was, for the next 30 days, going to say yes to everyone who asked him for money quoting him, every beggar on the street, every musician, every nonprofit. Every time he got asked for money, he was going to give. He decided to do this in order to break the habit of saying no. And as he got into the experiment, he began to feel like a generous person. And he realized that if he wanted people in the world to be more open, more action-oriented, and more generous, He needed to be more open, more action-oriented, and more generous. And related to Dichter's 30-day experiment, there's one last TED Talk that I'd like to recommend. Matt Cutts gave a talk on 30-day challenges, in which he discusses a bunch of 30-day challenges that he took. Losing weight, bicycling 100 miles, you know, whatever. Um... And this goes right along, oh, uh, these 30-day experiences allow us to cultivate the virtue of generosity, the habit of giving, 
in small steps. We don't have to become saying yes to everybody who asks you all the time. Um, although that was another 30-day experiment. But we can set a 30-day goal. And once we do a sm- take a small step and incorporate it into our behavior every day for 30 days, it becomes part of us. Okay, And this goes right along with the Buddha's advice that what we regularly ponder will be the inclination of our mind and is in line with what Bhikkhu Bodhi said about how giving serves to help break down our usual egocentric frame of mind. So just recapping, because I covered a lot of material and I don't learn well auditorily, um, from the suttas, we know that giving is a rudimentary virtue. Um, it's one of the three bases of meritorious action. Um, there are three happinesses in giving before when we contemplate the generous act, during when we give, and after contemplating the virtue of the deed and cultivating the intention, shaping the inclination of mind. From the research, um, How to Buy Happiness corroborates the Buddha's teachings of not eating without sharing. Again, the three happinesses. Um, I didn't touch on it, but the uh, Buddha's Brain book by uh, Hansen and Mendius, Taking in the Good, I mentioned in the meditation, when you realize the mind has wandered, that's a moment of mindfulness. So don't jump away from it too quickly. Um, if any of you were here to hear Meng Tan talk about his book, Joy on Demand, you want to spend a few moments thinking about the source of joy to have it really come in and, and change our brain. Um, and Dichter's 30-day generosity experiment, saying yes and Matt Cutts' 30-day challenges leading us to changes that will become permanent. So make giving a habit, cultivating our intention and establishing the inclination of mind serves to weaken the egoistic frame of mind that's our usual mode of operation and to strengthen our perception of reality as being, you know, we're all one. We're all in this together. And giving, whether it be time, attention, help, material goods, or money, will, in one of the Buddha's sayings, serve to make us happy for a long time. So that's the body of the talk, but I would like us to do another little quickie dyad talking about a time when you did give. So we talked about the stuck places. Let's talk about our successes very briefly. So just the talk about, we don't have to do the reflection phase, but get with your original partner and we'll just do two minutes sharing a time when you felt the joy of giving, whatever it was, however small, however insignificant. Okay, so back to your original partners.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.